Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Revelation. We'll be in the third chapter. Uh, my name is Matt Baker. I am one of the elders here. I'm not uh, Pastor Ken, and so Lord willing, you'll hear uh, from him preaching uh, next week. Um, and it's good to be here. We had missed two weeks um, because I got uh, COVID. And uh, not supposed to say that out loud, are you? And so, uh, but we appreciate the Lord was far, far more gracious to us than we deserve. Nobody else in my family got sick. And, um, <clears throat> and you guys were all very kind to us. Thank you for the prayers and for checking in. And uh, it, it was, the sickness was mild and that was God's grace. And so uh, we didn't need anything, but we appreciate uh, the love that you all uh, showed to us. I, I do need somebody to take me out to lunch today, so if you want to do that, that's fine, but, uh, but otherwise, uh, we're, we're good to go. So um, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read there in just a moment. Uh, in his book, The First Thanksgiving, historian Robert Tracy McKenzie tells the story of some of the first pilgrims that traveled to what we now know as America. And he wrote the following... Compared to the dangers they faced in England, their hardships in Holland were so ordinary. I don't mean to minimize them, but merely to point out that they are difficulties we are more likely to relate to. Now, what he's talking about here is before they came to what we now know as America, they first escaped persecution. That's the dangers they faced in England as separatists. They first escaped persecution there in England and went to Holland before they traveled here. And so he's referring to that. And he's referring to hardships that they faced in Holland, and his words were they were so ordinary. Not to minimize them, he said, but he said he thinks it's something that we, in our modern context, could relate to. So let me pick back up with this quote. This is what he said of their difficulties in Holland. They worried about their children's future. They feared the effects of a corrupt and permissive culture. They had a hard time making ends meet and they wondered how they would provide for themselves in old age. And he asked, does any of this sound familiar? And then he continued on. And in contrast to their success in escaping persecution, they found the cares of the world much more difficult to evade. Now listen to what happens next. As they traveled here. He says, as it turned out, thorns... Thorn bushes grew in the new world as well in the old. In little more than a decade, Bradford, that's William Bradford, was concerned that the economic circumstances were weakening the fabric of the church. This time, ironically, the culprit was not the pressure of want, but the prospect of wealth. As faithful members of the congregation left Plymouth in search of larger, more productive farms. A decade after that, Bradford was decrying the presence of gross immorality within the colony. Drunkenness and sexual sin had become so common. Now, Mackenzie goes on to talk about how the pilgrims had to grapple with the cost of discipleship. What does seeking first God's kingdom look like in their present circumstances? What does obligation to the church look like? And so on. See, in England, they faced persecution. In Holland, they faced want in, moral, in a morally corrupt society. 
And now in Plymouth, they eventually knew prosperity and each posed unique challenges to their faith. The point is, brothers and sisters, in this world, we will always know trouble. In this world, our culture, no matter where we live, at what time, and in what place, is always going to be a challenge to the church. There will always be the danger of syncretism, of syncing up with the culture in some way, and the culture influencing the church more than we realize. You compare that to a book that was recently released in the beginning of 2020, just before the pandemic started, by a public intellectual known as Ross Douthat. You might could put a French flair on that and call it Dutat, but I think it's Ross Douthat who wrote the book, The Decadent Society. And in his talking, he says, has America come to the point where we have become so prosperous, so wealthy, that it's really led to just stagnation, where we just sit in our comfort. Um, Ross Douthat is talking about culture at large. He writes as a Roman Catholic, but without a doubt, what he sees in the culture most certainly poses threat to the church as well. That we could know such prosperity, such comfort, that we too could sit in stagnation, without even realizing it. Why am I talking about this? Well, I think what we're seeing in the seven letters of the seven churches here in Revelation is just that, that the culture is eminently influential on the church, and that each of these churches are facing unique challenges within the culture that God in his providence has placed them So brothers and sisters, this is not something to decry, but this is something to face with confidence, knowing that God gives grace to do what he's called us to do and to live faithfully within the context in which he's placed us. And so here in Revelation chapter 3, we see this at the church at Sardis. Read with me in God's word. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. And repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is the very word of life. Oh Lord, this morning, 
Without a doubt, we struggle with sleepiness, just as the church at Sardis did. Father, we pray that we will have ear to hear this morning. Lord, that you would stir us from any slumber that we might be in. And Father, that our affections for your glory and for your Son would be stoked. Father, that we would finish the race, that you would preserve us by your word so that we might persevere. And oh Lord, we pray that even this morning, you would awake some from the spiritual death that they're in. You would call them to salvation and life for the very first time. And we would soon see these waters of baptism stirred again. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as we set the stage here for this letter to the church at Sardis, let me just give you a few things by way of background on what's going on. Sardis was one of the oldest cities in Asia Minor. It was established around 1200 B.C. And during its early years, it was a very prestigious city, and it was formidable military power. And so based on where it was staged uh, and, and developed geographically, it was almost impenetrable as far as a military power. <clears throat> in fact, it had just become a slogan of the day that if you were going to meet a nearly impossible task, you would just say, it's like conquering Sardis. Because people just knew you didn't conquer Sardis. It was a military powerhouse, and it was a city that was nearly impossible to be sacked. And so Sardis never returned to its status of prestige after three events. Finally, it was taken over by military might. I think in a moment we'll see that this is exactly what would be called to mind when Jesus confronts the church at Sardis, that the Persians were able to send one who snuck under the radar of the comfort there in Sardis and figured out a way that they could penetrate the city and they returned later and they conquered the city. And then once again, it would be conquered due to their own pride and arrogance of overlooking, of thinking no one would even begin to try. So after two military conquests that overtook Sardis and then the great earthquake there in AD 17, Sardis never quite returned to its prestige. The city seemed to dwell on past glories. You know the temptation, right? We call it Uncle Rico syndrome. That is a movie reference, by the way. And they're dwelling on the past and the glories of the past. And they rest those past glories on the reality of who they are now. The history that confronted them seemed to blind them to their present as they still thought they were as great as they once were. And the church at Sardis, like the city, seems to be living on past glories as well. They are not what they think they are. So let's look at verse 1 together. This is going to shock you. I don't have a PowerPoint. Glad to know you're shocked. (laughs) Laughter instead of gasp. Um, Here's my outline. There's an indictment, verse 1. There's the wake-up call, verses 2 through 3a. And then there's a warning, 
verses 3b through 5. Indictment, a wake-up call, and a warning. So let's look at the indictment first. There in verse 1, this is how Jesus addresses the church. He says to them, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have this reputation of, of being alive. You're living on these past glories. But the reality is, is that you're blind to what you actually currently are, your present status, that you are in fact dead. And this is a serious charge. This is coming from the judge of the cosmos. This is Jesus whose eyes pierce like fire, whose tongue is like a double-edged sword that cuts both bone and marrow. It cuts through all pretense. There's nothing for them to say against this charge from Christ. Two years ago, yesterday, I had a heart cath procedure. And for those of you who don't know, this is a procedure where they run a camera through one of your major arteries, entering in through your upper thigh or your wrist. Thanks be to God, they use my wrist. And they use the camera in contrast, and they look at your heart and the arteries in your heart to see if there's any blockages. What led me there was several trips to the ER with chest pain that they couldn't figure out. And so we finally came to this point where I'm laying on the cold table, strapped to it. I am awake, which I wanted to be, by the way. And, and I'm watching everything with great... I don't even know the word. I'm at a loss for words, isn't that amazing? With, with, with just great concern, right? Great focus and attention. This cardiologist comes into the room and he cuts into my right wrist. I feel the camera running up my arm. And there's a big 60-inch monitor right here. So I'm looking at that very adamantly. I see my heart. And he comes up and he says, all right, right side's clear. And I'm paying attention because this is the expert and we're looking at my heart. A heart's kind of vital to life, you know. It's not like a toe. You kind of need it. He says, let's check the left side. And then I hear, oh, no. <laughs> what do you mean, oh, no, is what I say from the table, which he's thinking, what are you doing talking? And I'm like, well, you're looking at my heart. And he says, oh, the camera just went out. We have to put it back in. And I'm like, can we think of something besides, oh, no, to say when we're looking at my heart? So I'm thinking, like, is death imminent? Am I going to make it through this? He runs the camera back up, and he says, all right, left side's clear. He says, now calm down. Your heart rate's going through the roof. I'm like, well, I'm thinking I'm about to die. You're sitting there saying, oh, no, while you're looking at my heart, right? We know the, the sobriety, the seriousness of the moment. Thanks be to God, by the way. That's not the point of the story, but everything was fine. I'm still here. And so, <clears throat> but we know the seriousness of that moment, right? This would be life and death. This could be a serious medical episode that would need attention right away. I signed all the waivers going into it, knowing everything that might be the outcome of it. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying here to the church at Sardis is far more serious. He's telling the church, 
I mean, I just want you to think about this for a moment. Christ has come in the church today. Oh, wow. I mean, all of our cultural tendencies. Ooh, I wonder if I'll get goosies when I see Jesus. All, all those types of things, right? But Jesus is met in fear, reverence. He says, I don't have good news for you. you I, I know your works. I know you. I see through everything. There's nothing hidden from me. It's not good news. You're not alive. You're dead. You're dead. I'm reminded of Jesus cursing the fig tree there in Mark 11. You remember as he's entering in to Jerusalem and he was hungry and he saw the tree that was in leaf. But when he approached it, there was no fruit on the tree. See, the tree had the appearance of fruit. It had the appearance of life and vitality and looked like it would be ripe. There will be fruit. There his hunger will be satisfied. He approaches the tree, no fruit, just the appearance of fruit. And he curses it and it dies. And it's very clearly pointing to the religious activity and fervor there in Jerusalem where he was entering in, where Mark would record that he immediately clears out the temple, where there was much activity. There, it was bustling like a, like a beehive, right? But there were those who were interfering with the worship that would be taking place there in the outer court, mainly among foreigners, by producing and setting up commercial commerce. And Jesus flips tables over and clears out. See, there was a lot of activity but there was no life. Brothers and sisters, we live in a society that values and puts a premium on activity, on busyness, on full schedules, because we think that hyperactivity means great productivity. And it is very easy for us in the church to adopt the same mindset. New Branch, we can have the appearance of life but be dead. We can be very active in base groups, Bible studies, serve 2021 in a few weeks. We can be active in weekly worship, but we can be spiritually dead. As Paul rebuked the church at Corinth, he says, hey, you have great gifts there in, in chapter 13. He says, but if you don't have love, you have nothing, you offer nothing, and you are nothing. Again, it's just a scathing rebuke that, that things look great on the outside, and, and there's much fervor, there's much activity, and it has the appearance of fruit, and it looks lush, but actually upon closer inspection held up against the word of God, there is nothing there. Brothers and sisters, what's all the more concerning is that they don't even realize it. I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Look at what he tells them next, wake up. You're asleep to this, this reality of what is going on right there in your midst. So look at, look at how he calls them to wake up. There he says in verse 2, he says, wake up, strengthen what remains. What is there? Because it's about to die. 
He says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. To summarize it as, wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you received and heard, keep it, and repent. Brothers and sisters, we'll return to this in just a moment. But it's important for us to, to see the weight of what's happening here and what it is that Christ is saying in his call. This is one of the most serious rebukes of these seven letters, this and the one at Laodicea. And if you'll notice, too, what can make this somewhat particularly challenging is he doesn't talk about anything specific going on, like he has in some of the previous letters. In Ephesus, it reads very similar to the letter in Ephesus. He told them they'd forsaken their first love, that they had doctrinal purity, and they were doing these things. But, and then we see other places where he's told them they've bought into some of the false lies and the false idolatries of culture. But here he doesn't list anything specific, but he tells them, you've been lulled to sleep. You are asleep. You're spiritually dead. You're not what you once were. And you need to wake up. You must strengthen what is there that's still good. And you need to remember and repent. Now, before we unpack more of what that would look like for us right now, let's turn to the warning. Because it it only amps things up more, if you will, and brings the seriousness and the weightiness to bear even more so. So we can pick up there in the second part of verse 3. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know what hour I'm coming against you. This is, without a doubt, would recall to them, remember how you thought you were fine as a city? You thought you were secure. You thought conquering Sardis, nobody's going to do that. And, and remember how unsuspecting, unwittingly, you were taken over. He says, I'll come to you like that. Brothers and sisters, this is, without a doubt, meant to put urgency on this that they would recognize that, that if we don't correct course, Christ is coming to bring judgment. He's coming to bring judgment. I'll come like a thief in the night. He says, I will come against you. That's the church. We know without a doubt in Christ's earthly ministry, it was his strongest rebukes were for the religious crowd represented by that fig tree who, who looked like they were full of life and vitality but actually were spiritually dead and were deceiving others and bringing reproach upon the name of the Lord and upon the gospel. And so even the same here, Christ's strongest rebukes would be for the church that is leading others astray and not pointing people to the gospel. <clears throat> And so his warning is, I'll come against you. So what is it that we're to understand this as? Let's look at the next few verses. He says, there are a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So he says, not everyone is asleep. And he says, they will press on. They're worthy. It reminds us of the call of Paul to walk in a manner worthy, the calling of which you've been called. They're, they're walking worthy of the calling of which they've been called in Christ Jesus, a great and high calling. And then look at verse 5. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, I think what we need to understand is, with this warning, what's going on here? <clears throat> 
is it possible for someone to have their name blotted out from the book of life? The revelation never seems to lend any, um, any, any credibility to that thought. That, that the Lamb's book of life, that the book of life is always for those who are in Christ and that they are secure. The Bible works when it offers a warning is that the warning is the means to the ends of perseverance. That the Lord uses warnings to preserve his people so that they persevere. That it is the means to God's ultimate ends that Philippians 1.6 is absolutely true, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And the way that he brings it to completion is that he offers warnings to his people. His people heed those warnings and they are preserved and persevere by hearing them. Why? Because his people are sobered when he speaks. Why? Because his sheep know his voice and they listen to him. John 6 and 10. And so here, Jesus is issuing the warning. In the end, is what we see there in verse 5, that they will conquer and they will be clothed in white and their names will never be blotted out of the book of life. But brothers and sisters, what that means is, is that there are times when we must be confronted in our sin and we must be sobered by God's word. And we heed that call. And we do what our master and what our Lord says. We wake up. We strengthen what remains. We remember what we've received and heard and we keep it. And we repent. Now a couple questions for us. Are you asleep? Are you asleep? Well, the first thing I think maybe you can ask is, am I, am I in this? Am I, do I need to hear this? Am I, am I weary? Am I in a slumber? Well, let me ask you this. Are you sobered by the words of Christ here? Do you find them sobering at all? See, those who don't know Christ don't care what he says. But for those of us who belong to him, when he speaks listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. When he speaks, we, we listen. So I think the first question is, are, are you sobered? I think the second question to ask, if we're asking ourselves, am, am I asleep? Am I one of the ones? Some are not, that's clear here. And some, we need to strengthen what remains, that's good, the, the remnant. But maybe, am I one of the ones who's asleep? I think another question you can ask is, is have you grown apathetic in your faith? Have you grown apathetic? You're active and you're doing a lot, but that's not the point. But your heart's just really not in it. Your heart's really not engaged. It's really not warmed. Your affections are not stirred for Christ. You're still going through the motions. You're still doing all the things but there's this apathy that's there. This joy is lost. You're no longer amazed by grace. You hear the gospel and you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. 
Friend, that's a dangerous place to be. If you find yourself there, then yeah, very well, you may be on your way to sleep. Another question. Have you fallen prey to the subtle temptations of syncretism? There's two major ways that that Christians can go. There's there's two sides of the horse that can be fallen off, right? Sectarianism, where we just wall ourselves off from the world completely. There's syncretism, where we sync up the philosophies of the world with Christianity, marry them together, and and create really a, a false gospel. And that's what I'm talking about here. Have we fallen prey to the subtle temptations of syncretism because I think that leads to apathy. I think that leads to to not cherishing the gospel because it defiles the gospel. And so has Christianity come more about advancing your kingdom rather than God's kingdom? Is, is, Is Christianity been a great tool for you to advance your career and move forward in your career? Has Christianity been a, a great tool for you to, to build your kingdom through your family and has, and has provided for you a great spouse and, and wonderful children and, you, and you're using Christianity to establish yourself? Has Christianity provided for you the social life that you wanted? See, what happens is when you hear people say things like, I tried that and it didn't work for me, they really mean it. Because what they mean is at some point in their life, it was working for them. It was advancing their career. It gave them the marriage they wanted. It gave them the family they wanted. It gave them the social outlet that they needed. But somewhere along the line, things broke down and didn't work, and they abandoned it. Because they had a false view of what Christianity really was. They had synced it up with building their kingdom and establishing their wants and their functional heaven. And once it no longer worked for them, they were done with it. Brothers and sisters, this is a real danger. Has Christianity become more about advancing a social agenda for you? A kingdom that way. That's another way that syncretism happens, that we we can marry it with politics, be it Republican, Democrat, Independent. If there's anything I'm leaving out, I'd be glad to say it, just yell it out, I'll offend everybody, it doesn't matter, right? But has it become more about that? and advancing that for us, and and advancing that social agenda that we want to see move forward. And Christianity is a great tool for that. And has Christianity become about, more about something besides Jesus? Anything. You can fill in the blank. But when you think Christianity, you think this, and not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here's a helpful test. When you encounter others, what do you want for them most? What do you want for them most? What do you think is the most important thing for their life? Oh, they just need to get married. Oh, they just need to have kids. Oh, if they could just get career and education. Oh, if they could just be like me because I'm awesome and laugh at the things that I laugh at and have the same social circles that I have. And, or if they just had my politics. What, I mean, what, do you, what, do you, what, do you, what connection do you want with other people when you meet them? Like if, you, if, if, they, if they say something, it's just like that, you get giddy about it. Like, oh, oh, we're alike. Yeah, this is great, right? 
you like the same sports team, you laugh at the same jokes, oh, you're a part of the same social circles, oh, you have the same taste that I do. What is it that you want most for them? And friend, if it's not Jesus, then there's a chance that you're syncing up your Christianity with something else. If your biggest concern for someone else is not, do they know the Lord? And do we have that in common? But if you're more concerned about, do we have the same schooling preferences? Do we have the same dress preferences? Do we have the same on and on we can go? There's a chance that we are marrying Christianity to advance something besides God's kingdom. So we ask the question, are, are we asleep? Are we sobered by the warning? Are we apathetic in our Christianity? We're active, but our hearts aren't really that engaged. And have we fallen prey to syncretism? Well, then I think the second thing to notice is, how do we return? How do we return? What does waking up look like? Well, here the passage tells us what to do. That's the good thing. Christ calls us clearly. Look at what he says. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. They're on the brink. The light's about to go completely out at Sardis. And he says, and by the way, once again, seems to be full of life and vitality. It doesn't mean there's only a few people left in the building and they're going to die. No, they're on the brink of not being a true church. And he says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your works, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. And friends, what did they receive and what did they hear? The gospel. It's the gospel. He's calling them back to the gospel. He's calling them to be amazed by God's grace again. Friends, I mean, it's been said, but we need to say it over and over. We just had one of the highest privileges that we could have as Christians, as a church together, to witness a baptism together. And that every one of us who claims the name of Christ and is a part of the church, when we saw that precious sister go under the water and come back up again, we should have been reminded, just as Bob said, of our own baptism that I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I was a, a rebel against God. I was his enemy actively engaged in rebelling against him. But God, rich in mercy, sent Christ Jesus, who lived the life that I could never live, went to the cross and bore the punishment that I deserve for my sins, bearing sin and shame, scoffing rude. He stood in my place condemned as a sinner, although he was a spotless lamb of God. This is an amazing story. There is nothing better than that. Tell me something. I would love to hear it. There's nothing better than Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus says, I am the one who is dead, but I am alive forevermore, never to die again, because I've defeated sin and death once and for all, and I did it for you. And so, brothers and sisters, when we go down, this is why you got to be Baptist, right? I mean, I'm sorry if you're... 
Presbyterian in here, but the sprinkling just doesn't do it. We want the drama of the gospel is that we went under as though we were condemned for our sins and we paid the punishment for our sins. We were buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, which was judgment. And God raised us to the newness of life in Christ Jesus, just as he raised him free from sin, free of the penalty of death to walk in that newness, not for our glory because we didn't do it, but for his glory. That's the good news of the gospel. Whoa, God forbid that we ever get tired of hearing that. God forbid that we ever go, oh, we gotta hear the gospel again. Oh, friend, you don't know it if you're tired of hearing it. And you wanna hear it because you know there's somebody in this room right now who's dead in sin and darkness and their eye is going to diffuse that quickening ray of light, right? And their chains are about to fall off and they're about to rise, go forward and follow Jesus. It's my adaptation of Charles Wesley. And we want that. We can't do that. Just like we didn't save ourselves, we can't save them. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. And just as we heard and God called us to life, even now, the Lord may do it again. And even now, as we hear, our hearts are warmed and we, and we remember, right? As we're called to hear in this passage, because we're so forgetful. And we remember, oh yeah, that, 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 that's me. I, I'm one of those. I'm one of those who was helpless, hopeless, but found life in Christ. Oh yeah, I, I remember that this week I was seduced by the calls of the world that, that, that more stuff would make me happy that a career promotion would make me happy, that getting to this stage of life would make me happy, that, that, that if, if I could just get this for my kids, then, then I would be happy. If we could just advance here, or if I could broaden my social circle, or if I could just get one friend, if you're like me, I don't have any friends, if I could just get one friend, those things would make me happy. We've been seduced by this, and we need to come here, and we need to be reminded, oh no, there is only one place where true bliss and joy can be found. And it's in Christ. And we can be woken up. I don't know if that's the right grammar. Wakened up, woken up. Whichever one's wrong, that's what I meant to say. So, uh, and and so, so that we would be once again revived by the good news of the gospel. Friend, if you're here this morning, I, I'm telling you, there's nothing that this world has to offer that compares to that. There is nothing that will carry you through death. I don't care what you have. When you're feeling like contemplating it sometime, just drive by a graveyard. We've got a few really close to here. Reflect on lives that are represented by those headstones. And just wonder, like, who even remembers them anymore? What, what, what did they accomplish in life 
that's offered them hope once they met the grave. Friends, I'm not a nihilist or a nihilist, however you want to say it. And everything matters that we do in life. But only one thing can bear the full weight of our soul and give us hope and give us a reason to live as though everything matters. And that's the gospel. That's the work of Christ on our behalf. So if you're here this morning and, and, and you're looking to the world for, for ultimate hope, the world for things to rest your life on, none of those things will hold you up. The greatest thing you could do in this moment is recognize your need and cling to Christ by faith. The one who saw your need came and took your punishment and offers you life. Brothers and sisters, during the quarantine for me, I called it exile, but during my exile, I think part of the grace of that time is that I had time to, to sit in stillness and in quiet. And during that, I recognized that my own heart was not where I wanted it to be. It was somewhat cold and needed to wake up. Brothers and sisters, I decided to turn to Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, and just review some of the chapters from it. And I was blown away by the words that Ortland shared from John Bunyan. Bunyan was commenting on John 6, 37, which reads, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now Bunyan's focusing there on uh, King James language, so he's going to use the word, I will in no wise cast out. But he's quoting exactly that, that Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now listen to the words of John Bunyan, and I hope they'll do your heart good as they did mine. They that are coming to Jesus are oftentimes heartily afraid that Jesus Christ will not receive them. Bunyan says, Jesus has promised to not cast out anyone who come to him dashes to pieces with one blow any objections we could raise. Hear the words of John Bunyan. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. But I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. This promise has provided to answer all objections and does answer them, says John Bunyan. Ortland adds the following words 
He says we would say, no, wait. Cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand, I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, Jesus responds. You know most of it, sure. Certainly more than what others see. But there's perversity down inside of me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all, says Jesus. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past. It's my present, too. I understand, says Christ. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only person that I'm here to help, says Jesus. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Let me carry it, says Christ. It's too much to bear, not for me, says Christ. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you then I am the one most suited to forgive them, says Christ. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you will get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Brothers and sisters, that is our Lord. He's the lion, and he'll bring judgment. But he's the lamb who was slain for us. And any who would turn to him, he will not cast out. Now, friends, you tell me somebody more worthy of you living your life for than the king who stepped out of heaven and came not to be served, but to serve, even by being cursed for you and I on a tree. There's nothing greater to live for than the king who comes and dies for his enemies. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let our hearts be warmed again and and let us wake up and let us not sit in our pride say, I'm already wide awake. Let us wake up to the glories of the gospel every day, not just today. And let us proclaim those glories with confidence knowing that there is nothing greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everybody needs a chance to respond to it. I end with this from Hosea 6. Verses 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is good. Father, give us grace to cherish it. Give us grace to have ears to hear it not just to be excited for a moment, not just to be intellectually stimulated for a moment, but by the power of your spirit for your word to change us as we respond to it in faith. And change us even now, sanctifying the saints more and more into the image of Christ and awakening dead sinners to the glories of the gospel for the first time right now, we ask. And it's all for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray.
Amen.